of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In the speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This is the word of God. Please join me in prayer. God, your word is powerful, and we know this, Lord. I pray that this morning its power would be unhindered. God, that you would speak through Pastor Kyle, that your Holy Spirit would lead us to revelations, but uh, mostly just to, to be closer to you and to know how to love you and others more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thanks so much, Mark. <clears throat> so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I just want to um, pray one more time, if you could, for a few um, things that I just want to share with God. Dear God, we, um, we come to you this morning again, and we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to gather. We want to ask, Lord, that the various things that we've talked about already, God, that we value, that are important to us, that you would be with us and bless us in those things. Bless us, Lord, as we gather in a few weeks with our neighbors and our community at just a fun kind of event where we share candy and games. I pray that many people would come, that they would hear the gospel, believe in Christ, that they would find the answers that they've been looking for, even though they weren't coming for that reason, maybe just coming to have fun and get some candy. I pray, Lord, that they would find Christ. And God, I pray that our church would just have, be encouraged, that you would give them strength as we serve our community, our volunteers, everyone that might be donating candy. Um, God, I pray, Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for their participation in our efforts to reach people with the love of Christ. And God, I pray, Lord, for this Wednesday as we gather, that our church would gather um, this Wednesday night um, for prayer um, as we're having our monthly um, prayer service. I pray, Lord, that our, our hearts would burn to pray, um, that, that we would make it um, just a, um, an, ur an urgency to come together to pray with each other and for each other. Just really anoint that time together as we get together this Wednesday night to pray. Um, we, we need you, God, and we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us your will. Help us now as we examine these things from your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. I, um, I hope to encourage you this morning with God's word um, and that we're encouraged together as we fellowship with each other around God's word, as we sing together, as we pray together. Um, this is uh, a privilege that we have as Christians to come and be obedient to what the word of God says and not forsaking the assembly of ourselves, especially as the day draws near. Um, to be joined to each other as God's people and to meet together, to hear his word and to pray. It's a historic um, Christian, uh, I guess, practice um, initiated by Christ and the Gospels. And 2,000 years later, we still continue this 
um, and take it very seriously. So thanks for being here this morning. There's a remarkable story in 2 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 6. There's an enemy army of Israel that had surrounded the city of Dotham. And the prophet Elisha and his servants is trapped in the city as this invading army who is vast in number surrounds them. And fear begins to ensue the city, especially Elisha's servants. He is terrified that their, their death is impending, that their doom is immediate. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, we read this. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning so that the servant of the man of God, the man of God is Elisha, and this is his servant. He gets out early the next morning, and he sees an army with horses and chariots that had surrounded the city. And he says, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm sorry, Elisha, you probably didn't get good grades in math at school because there's a lot more of, there's thousands upon thousands more of them than us. What are you talking about? And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This invisible army of angels that the servant was completely unaware of their presence had suddenly been revealed to his sight. Elisha says, what, you don't see, what we don't see with our eyes, I see with the eyes of faith. The angelic armies had surrounded them and protected them. So the armies of Israel were smaller, but they did not outnumber the angelic hosts, God's armies. This invisible army suddenly appeared to the eyes of the servant. Aram, this enemy king, had outnumbered Israel, but he could never outnumber Yahweh. Now, stories like this in the Bible abound. We see them over and over and over again. They range from angelic rescues to conquering warrior angels, single-handedly defeating entire cities. And to our modern ears, I think, these, these seem, like if you're a skeptic, if you're not a Christian, these seem like, like sort of like nice bedtime stories, right? Maybe they have some moral value, but these things aren't real. Certainly they didn't happen, you might presume. Now, Christians, like me, and perhaps if that's you, believe that these actually did happen. These are historical occurrences. But we, we, even though we acknowledge the reality of, of the history of these things in Scripture, sometimes we sort of doubt that this sort of thing still goes on today. right? That, that God actually cares for us in similar ways like he did then. Yet we read an account of a missionary to the new hybrids named John G. Patton. And listen to the story that is written in um, Billy Graham's book called Angels. John G. Patton had aroused the enmity of the local native chief 
by his success in preaching the gospel. By, by the way, John Patton was a missionary in the 19th century um, to, to the new hybrid islands. He, had aroused, he aroused the enmity of the local native chief, chief by his success in preaching the gospel. So the chief hired a man to kill the missionary. The bad day, bad news. The man went to the missionary's house, but instead of murdering Patton, he returns in terror, saying he had seen a row of men dressed in white in front of his house, surrounding the missionary's home. The chief thought the man had drunk too much whiskey. Okay, logical. Encouraged him, go and try again. The next time, others of the tribe accompanied him. Other people went with him. That night, they all saw, saw three rows of men surrounding Patton's house. When the chief asked the missionary where he kept the men in the daytime, he comes back, what's going on? Where are these soldiers that you're hiding? Where, where, where you kept the men in the daytime who surrounded his house at night, Patton, knowing nothing of what had happened, disclaimed the whole idea. When the chief, in amazement, told his story, the missionary realized the natives had seen an angelic company which God had sent to protect him. Amazing story of God, how God still sends his provision for us in supernatural ways to protect us in ways sometimes we're not even aware of. Now the Bible has a lot to say about angels and demons too, by the way. In most of our modern culture, I think I mentioned this a moment ago, I think sometimes we write this off as mystical fantasy. And sometimes even as Christians, as Christian Americans living in modernity, we struggle with it a little bit too, if we're honest. <clears throat> when, we, when we do affirm maybe the reality of some kind of unforeseen or unseen world, whether Christian or not, normally we come up with our ideas based on our own imagination or the imagination of others. We start um, understanding who angels and demons are based on Hollywood. So angels are babies with wings. Of course, they must be babies that have wings. We become maybe a, another popular sort of um, thing that, that is said sometimes about angels is that we become angels after we die. Um, Satan, right, he's red and he's got a tail and a pitchfork. Right? This is sort of our imagination as Americans trying to understand what could this unseen world possibly look like? What does it um, entail? You know, as Halloween approaches, we encounter our culture kind of making light, um, mostly making light of this sort of unseen demonic kingdom, um, more entertained by pretending about it rather than believing that it's real. That's maybe at best. Um, at worst, some actually believe and participate and Things that scripture forget, forbids, like fortune-telling and witchcraft and more, believing sort of in these dark forces that they can help us and aid us and guide us. These can be real, demonically charged, and why scripture says to avoid them at all costs, because they are very dangerous. So as Christians, we don't want to be informed by the belief systems of our culture, by the imagination of Hollywood, but God's word. We want to know what scripture has to say about these things because we can just make up anything that we want to make up, can't we? We can make what we want up about God too. But as God reveals these things to us, we know the truth about these things so that we can live cautiously 
and soberly, wisely. Now, we've been in a series called Basically Jesus, in which we've discussed the basic beliefs of Christianity, about God, about the Bible, about Jesus. It's been a series that we've been in for a couple of months now. If you've missed any of it, you can go online and you can get the back sermons on our sermon section. Um, This morning, though, we're going to add to our discussion in this series about the topic of angels and why it matters. What are angels and why does it matter? You know, that's the first thought I had when even considering this topic. The Bible says a lot about them. Um, our, uh, um, it gives us a lot, believe it or not, it gives us a lot of information about angels, about Satan, about demons. Why does, it, if we can't see them, what, and, and God is what is important and what matters, why are we even talking about this, right? So we're going to talk about four things this morning to help us answer some questions about what the Christian faith says about angels. We're going to first talk about the nature of angels, We're going to look at holy angels. Thirdly, we're going to look at fallen angels. And then we're going to close with why this matters, why this is important. So let's first look at the nature of angels. The first thing that I want to say about the nature of angels is that they are real, created, intelligent beings. They're not made up. They're not fiction of Scripture. Um, They're actual beings that God has created. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that you can see there on the screen, it says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It says, what this is saying here is that Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, specifically created the unseen world, which is presumed here by the the terms thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. That's a reference to the angelic kingdom. So Jesus Christ created the angels. That's the context of Colossians chapter 1. The Bible mentions angels too many times as servants of God that interact in intelligible ways with humanity for us to write them off as some kind of work of fiction. They're not poetic fantasy. They are talked about over and over again in the historical narratives, not the poetry. Poetry sometimes lends itself to fantasy, right? Or to metaphor, things like this. But the historical narratives, um, the, the books of the Bible that are specifically dealing with history, over and over again talk about angels. They're, they're in the Gospels. They're in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They're in Samuel, Chronicles, Kings. These are all historical narratives that talk about the the reality and existence of angels created by Jesus Christ. So they're real, created, intelligent beings, okay? Um, The second thing we can know about them is that they seem to be created by God long before the creation of humanity or the universe. So in other words, they existed before we did and before the earth did. Uh, It says this, we get this from Job chapter 38, You can see on the screen, where were you, God asks, this is God asking Job in this context, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, because Job was complaining to God. He was having a hard time because he had some suffering in his life. And he was questioning, God, why did you you let this happen to me? Why is this happening in my life? And we've all had that question, haven't we? When pain comes, when tragedy and loss comes, it's a fair question. So Job is asking this question to God, and God answers and says to him, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Who, excuse me, 
Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. See, God is being a little fresh right here. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Did you do that, Job? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? You see, in verse 7, though, and this is the point of me reading this, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. See, what this is telling us is that when God created the stars and the earth and the plants and the animals and even man, the angels were present applauding God. You see, the presumption then is that the angels were created before us. You see? The angels were with God before the creation, giving praise to God for everything that he had made. The angels are clearly present as spectators, giving praise to God as he created all the visible universe. Isn't that fantastic? The third thing I want to know about angels is that the word angel, um, angelion in Greek, it means messenger, and it refers to a a special class of being superior to humanity in intellect and power. So these are messengers of God that are smarter and stronger than you and me. Maybe me. (laughs) Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? For you made him lower than the angels. Right? So scripture tells us that angels are more powerful and more intelligent than you or I. There's even one place in scripture where it said Peter warns us, don't mess with the fallen ones because you're just a person. Okay? Right? So... One, one angel in the Old Testament, and this happened many times in the Old Testament, in particular, one angel was tasked with single-handedly destroying an army of thousands. One angel. Right? These, were, these are what some theologians call God's destroyer angels. One angel would go into to an army of, inv- of, of enemies of Israel that were bent on killing all of them, and one angel would take them out in one night. So these angels are messengers. They are a special class of being superior to humanity and intellect and power. Fourthly, these super beings, like humanity, are free and morally responsible. They're not robots. Okay? They make a choice to either serve God or not serve God. They're expected to use their freedom to imitate our good God and serve him as the only God. And we can see this in Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 14, when Satan was good. Satan is an angel, by the way. He was created as a good angel. And he served God in his, in, in his God-likeness, but then one day decided to rebel against God. This is in Isaiah chapter 14. He took, by the way, one-third of the angels. We learn this in Revelation chapter 12. One-third of the angels followed him in his rebellion. So angels are free and morally responsible, intelligent beings. Scripture holds them morally responsible because they'll be judged, Satan and his armies will be judged at the return of Christ and forever separated from him, according to Scripture, in the lake of fire. So number five, angels never die and are neither male nor female. God created angels like humanity to live forever, but unlike humanity, they do not have gender 
they are neither male nor female. They don't get married in Luke chapter 20. We, re we read about this. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given to marriage. So heaven, we won't be married in heaven to our husbands or wives. We'll probably know them and like them more than we do now, right? So don't worry, you'll still love them and you'll love them more than you do now. But you're not going to be in a married relationship in heaven, according to the scripture. And it says they will, they will neither be married nor given to marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So angels are neither male nor female. They're not married. They don't have families like us, and they never die. They live forever. Angels, sixthly, are spiritual, non-physical beings. They don't have bodies. They're spiritual beings. They appear to man often as having a body, but the Bible calls them, in our text, Hebrews chapter 12, ministering spirits. So they don't have bodies like you and I. Though at times they appear as men and have an appearance of physical bodies, they are spiritual beings. Their number, this is very interesting, this is number seven, their number is so vast that the Bible couldn't even give them a number. This is kind of like, you know, when you're a kid, like, I love you a million times a zillion, right? Because there's no word that, there's no, like, label for a number that high. So what we'll do is, like, a billion times a billion, a billion times a trillion, because there's, there's nothing beyond that. I don't know how high it goes. Is trillion the highest one? I don't know. Probably not. I'm not, I'm not a math guy. But, like, there's no number so high that the Bible can give as, as far as the amount of angels that God created, and we see this in Revelation chapter 5, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. You see what it's doing? It's saying there's no number that I can give you, so I have to take the highest numbers and just multiply them by, the, by other highest numbers. So their number is so vast that they can't even be counted. Number eight, when angels... This is very fascinating and remarkable. When angels have appeared to human beings, they've been so spectacular and so beautiful and so powerful that whenever a man or a woman saw them, they immediately bowed down and worshipped them because they thought it was God. That's how amazingly spectacular and beautiful when an angel actually does reveal itself to a human being in this way, their people are confused because they're so majestic and glorious. One angel had to tell the apostle, no, jo this is John, the apostle John, who lived and walked with Jesus Christ, his best friend, the one whom Jesus loved, scripture says. An angel appears to John, and John starts to worship the angel. He thinks it's God, and you know what the angel does? He says, get up. I'm a servant of the Lord. Worship him. I'm going to get in trouble, <laughs> right? Get up, get off your knees. I'm not God. That's how amazingly beautiful, spectacular, powerful angels are. Now, in the Bible, there are two categories. Now, these are angels in general, right? In Scripture, there are two categories of angels as they relate to God. They are holy angels or elect angels, sometimes the Bible calls them, and fallen angels. Fallen angels are what Satan is, Lucifer, um, what demons are. We'll get to that more in a second. But first, I want to take a look at holy angels. So we've looked at the nature of angels. I want to look at holy angels now, God's holy angels. These are the ones that chose not to follow Satan in his rebellion. 
These remain holy. They're in right relationship with God, with his moral purity, and with his will. That's why they're called holy or elect. Matthew 25 says, when the Son of Man, um, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his throne. Right? So these angels are referred to as elect or holy. The Bible most typically refers to angels. When it talks about angels, it's almost always talking about this category of angels, holy angels. Now these holy angels have an order, and some of them are even named. So I want to go through that a little bit with you. What, are these, what is the order and names of the holy angels in Scripture? Well, the first one named that we have is named Michael, and you can see it on the screen. You've all probably heard, if you've read the Bible for any period of time, of the archangel Michael. And we read about him in Jude chapter 9. He's called the archangel. And what that means is that Michael basically is the general of all of the angelic hosts. He's the one in charge, so to speak. By the way, many Bible scholars believe that he got that job when Satan lost it. Isn't that interesting? Satan, Lucifer, who was, who was named Lucifer, was, was in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, was said to be guarding the throne of God. So the implication there is that he's got Michael's job. So but he falls and it's given to Michael. So he probably, Satan probably doesn't like Michael very much. But listen to what happens in Jude chapter 9. I'll read it to you. It says, Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, Satan, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael is recognizing the power of Satan is so great that he won't even try to fight him on his, with his own power, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. So here is this archangel Michael. The second angel that we see in scripture, his name is Gabriel. You've heard of him? He seems to be, whenever we see, whenever we see Gabriel, He's announcing to man something about Jesus. So that seems to be the job that, that God has given to the angel Gabriel. He shows up in the Old Testament to the, in the book of Daniel over and over again to talk about the coming Messiah and all the events that will surround that. If you read the book of Daniel, um, Gabriel is all over the place. Now, Gabriel also shows up to Zacharias in the Gospels, in the New Testament, because he's telling Zacharias that he's going to have a son. Well, his wife is going to have a son, and his name is going to be John the Baptist. Remember this? It's Gabriel that showed up to Zacharias to tell him about this. And by the way, it was also Gabriel that showed up to the Virgin Mary to let, to let Mary know that Christ uh, would come through her. So Gabriel is one of these holy angels um, that, we, that we see read about um, all over the the Gospels, and all over the Old Testament. So that's number two. Number three, all of these angelic hosts are called elect, the elect angels. So number one is Michael. Number two is Gabriel. And number three is the elect angels. Most of the angels aren't named in Scripture, but are simply called holy or elect. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. 
I think our slide guy is getting a little behind here. I was, I was really trying to be subtle. Number one, Michael. Number two, Gabriel. And number three, elect. Are we broken up there or something? Or? Oh, it doesn't so show it on mine. Okay, they're doing their job then. My fault. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> um, okay, so I'm on number three. Uh, the angels are, in general, referred to as elect angels. Most of the angels are not named, but they're simply called holy or elect. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. I'm charging you, uh, he's saying, listen to me because of the holy angels. They're watching, right? They point to the fact that God has divinely appointed them to his service under his rule and authority. So that's the elect angels. The fourth classification of angels are called principalities and powers. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. Now, what this points to, what this language points to in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 is rank and order. So all of these billions of angelic hosts are ranked and ordered, and what we see actually in Scripture is a sort of invisible war that's occurring between Satan's fallen angels and between these elect angels. These principalities and powers are sort of defending humanity from the lies and from the schemes of Satan himself, the principalities and powers. Some of you um, might have heard of cherubim angels or seraphim angels. Have you heard of these before? These are other classes of angels that we see in Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 in particular. Cherubim angels are tasked with defending God's holiness. Now let me explain to you what this means. They defend his holiness, his presence, from any defilement of sin. Now imagine this, because what this is talking about here is if you can recall in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were created, and where were they? In the Garden of Eden. They were in the presence of God. They had fellowship with God. They walked with God in his midst. But then they sinned. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 3 is they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And on the east of the garden, there was a gate. And when they were expelled, God put two cherub angels to guard the entrance. The idea there was where, where God's presence is, there can be no, no sin. So these cherub angels are sort of guarding his holiness. He's not allowing sinfulness to enter. If you recall also in the Old Testament, there was something called um, um, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was put into this tent that nobody could go in except the high priest. And the high priest could only go in after he performed sacrifices and rituals to purify himself. On top of the Ark of the Covenant sat, sat two golden cherub angels. Again, the idea is that only someone who is holy can enter into the presence of God. And these cherub angels sort of do God's bidding to keep anything that is not holy out of his presence. Now imagine this for a moment with me. Satan was an anointed cherub angel tasked 
with keeping unholiness out of the presence of God. That was his job. He had that close and direct access to God as a cherub angel, as the chief angel, and it was sin that was found in his heart. What what a great irony. And just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, Satan and the fallen angels were cast out of heaven in Revelation chapter 12. So cherub angels were tasked with with defending God's holiness. Satan was a created um, cherub angel in Ezekiel chapter 28. And as we saw, they were tasked with protecting or guarding the holiness of God. Seraph angels are mentioned only in Isaiah chapter 6. These are the ones with six wings and faces all over the place. They're like the stuff of nightmares. And they seem to be tasked with the continual praise of God himself. They're holy, 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 constantly day and night, Scripture says in Isaiah 6 and Revelation and all over the place. These angels are, are, are praising God um, without end. So these are the elect angels. We see Michael, Gabriel, the elect being all of them, principalities and powers, cherub and seraph. The, the next I want to um, describe to you now is that the second class of angels are the fallen angels. Now, this gets, this gets a little hairy, okay? Um, I want to talk a little bit first about their origin. Fallen angels are referred to also in, in Scripture as demons. Um, so a demon in the Bible is a fallen angel that used to be a good angel, an elect angel, a holy angel, but they fell. They re- rebelled against God. So demons are simply fallen angels in Scripture. They were led by Satan. Um, they were led by Satan in their rebellion, one-third of them, and an, of an innumerable, uh, an innumerable company, by the way, of these super beings created for the purpose of worshiping God and defending his holiness. These rebelled against God and aimed to take his place. It says in Isaiah chapter 14, I will rise above the clouds of heaven and exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. That was Satan's defined rebellion against God. I will rise above you. My throne will be above your throne. That's what it means to go above the clouds of heaven. The cloud, the cloud in, in the Old Testament was a symbol of the presence of God. Remember the glory cloud came into Israel, and that was the presence of God as a, a pillar of smoke. You see, this symbol of God's presence, Satan is saying, I will rise above you. I'll be God, in other words, and people will worship me and not you. You see, that was the the initial angelic rebellion. And by the way, the primary lie to you and I is that we are not in Romans chapter 1 to worship God, but we are to worship the creation. All sin is, is that. We worship the creation and not God. We worship ourselves, our will, and not God. We say, God, you're not God. Your God is the thing that you obey. It's a simple, that's what idolatry is. Whatever it is that you obey, what you get your orders from in Scripture, that's your God. So to sin against God, to say no to God, what's the implication? You're saying yes to some other higher authority, right? That's idolatry. We say, if you say yes to you, to your own emotions and will, what you're saying is that you're God and God is not. It's the same lie that Satan told himself and others. You see? Isaiah chapter 14, I will rise above the clouds of heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. Oh, the arrogance to think that we can be above our maker. 
Satan and his fallen army are reserved for judgment, have no provision of redemption. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 tells us that it is not angels that God saves, but man. These demons are referenced constantly in the Bible. They share Satan's doom and are his servants to his agenda. And I want to make three observations about the fallen angels as we see in Scripture. Now, I don't think I made point, um, slides for these, so you just have to follow along. These are three observations that we can make about fallen angels from Scripture. The fallen world is said to be actively deceiving humanity, actively deceiving humankind, sons of Adam, right? So the, and the fallen angelic job is to lie to you and to lie to me. The fallen world is said to be deceiving humanity to those who have not believed in Christ. Now, they have a specific job in particular. They continually lie. Satan is called the father of... You know, what the, you know what Jesus called Satan in John chapter 6? The father of lies. And you know his chief lie, what is the, the primary lie, the main lie? He lies about everything, right? But there's a primary lie. The, the one he gets us all with first. If he's going to trick us in any other way, he has to first trick us about this one thing, and it's in Romans chapter 1. To worship and serve the creature over the creator. In other words, you have another boss. You're the boss. What did he say to Adam and Eve? Did God say, you will not die, or you will die? You shall not die. You see, there's another word. Don't believe God. Believe yourself. You see, what we do, according to Scripture, is we take God off the throne and we put ourselves on it. And from that comes every other lie, every other deception. Satan's called the father of lies in John chapter 6. Look, look, look at what he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds... The God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So what scripture is saying is that the reason people don't believe that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, is because Satan has lied to them and they believed that lie. That's this imagery in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded us and it requires a supernatural move of God who is stronger than Satan to remove that veil so that we can see and trust in Christ. To God's people, that, that's the lie that he brings to people who do not belong to Christ. But to God's people, he is one of our three enemies, the other being the flesh and the world. Satan is actively interested in derailing your faith as a Christian. We're warned not to entertain him in any way. We're warned not to go to seers or fortune tellers or these sort of like dark magical things that are around us. And we're also warned not to believe in the more subtle temptations in life that he brings to us, aiming to create doubt towards God, leading to disobedience to his will. This is what Satan aimed to do with Christ himself. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, he lied to Jesus himself so that he would disobey God's will. You see, so Satan um, is deceiving both the fallen world and God's people. He is 
a liar. Right, so that's the first observation. The second observation I want to make is that the believer need only fear Satan's influence and power when you're actively resisting God's Spirit. What I mean by this here is we don't need to check under our chair for demons. We don't need to live like that. We don't need to be afraid of Satan at all as Christians. The only time that we ever need to be concerned about him is when we've believed him and we've decided to rebel against God's will for our lives and take matters into our own hands that's when he has an influence and his forces have an influence with us Satan has no power over anyone's life outside of that which God permits and we can see this again in the book of Job Um, Satan had to ask permission to mess with Job So if Satan's messing with you, you have to understand that the only reason that it's happening is because God, who is your defender, is allowing it. So you trust in him. We're told that Satan must flee when we resist him. Through God's word, through prayer, through the promise of God in James chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 6, when we resist him, he will flee. So we don't have to worry about him or be afraid of him. He's not in control. He's not in charge. We have a greater hero, a greater rescuer that is our defender. Amen? Thirdly, Satan and his fallen world has a marked destiny. They will be forever separated from God in John chapter 12, verse 31. They will will be cast out of heaven in Revelation chapter 12. They will be confined to the abyss in Revelation chapter 20 and will be finally doomed at the judgment seat of Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, this is what it says. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, the devil who deceived them, who, cast, who was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, in the end, Jesus wins. He wins now, by the way, not just in the end. Jesus wins. He doesn't, Satan has no power over you or I or Christ or God. He is allowed to do what he does for a season, for an hour. And Christ will end it completely. Now I want to close this this sermon by discussing a little bit about why this matters. You say, okay, this is very interesting, but who cares? Big deal. Why does this matter? The first thing I want to say is this. The point to your life is not your life. We're not all there is. Right? God, I guess what I'm trying to say here that's not on the screen there, is that God is glorious. All of life is not about me. There's more purpose than simply how much money I have or, or the mountains that I aim to climb in life, the vision, the plan that I have for my life. There is so much more happening. There is so much more going on that is infinitely more important than your retirement accounts. Right? It's just so much more, and we got to trust in that. That there is a drama, a saga, in which God is orchestrating the whole thing to bring to us, to his end for our life, his plan for our life, not our own. Isn't that fantastic? The fact of the the angelic hosts 
in their power, beauty, and number should point us to the amazing power of God himself. If God made these things, how powerful is God? How brilliant is God? How beautiful is God? The God of the angels, the God of the planets and stars. He is immense, and his plan is so much greater than what we could imagine our plan is for our life. So would you surrender your plan for your life to God's plan for your life? Would you recognize that there's something going on that's so much more important than what you get or the things that you want? And I put myself, oh friend, I put myself in the same category. There is an intention, the orchestrator, the creator. God made me for a reason. It's to bring me to himself. It is to end angelic and human rebellion against him so that I can live with him forever in perfect harmony. Perfect glory. That's the meaning of my life. That's the purpose of my life. It's not to be a dentist. Right? Those things are fine. God, God created us. It's okay to go after those things. But just remember, put that underneath the primary purpose of your life, which is to give glory to God. He created you for that purpose. <clears throat> Billions move at God's command to serve his purpose, to bring his kingdom. Oh, friend, do you move to that end? Are you concerned? Are you bending your neck like scriptures say, like the angels bend their necks in 1 Peter to observe how God has saved humanity? Do you bend your necks? Is that why you bend your neck? What are you reaching to look at? What are you striving for? You know, the second thing this teaches me is that human history matters. Angels are present at creation, applauding God for, created, for creating the universe. They were present in Hebrews chapter 2 when God gave the law to Moses. They are very interested in human history. Human history, what happens on this earth matters. It's important. Angels are present at the birth, temptation, grief, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus matters. And G why did Jesus even come here? To rescue us. Redemption matters. You see, human history, particularly in the context of God wanting relationship with man, redeeming us back to himself, is the most important story that we have in Scripture, and the angelic story should teach us that, because it's what Satan tried to prevent, and it's what God's holy angels are constantly observing and praising God for. You see, human redemption matters. You see, number three, this should point us to the third and most obvious thing, that you matter. Humanity matters. Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you're mindful of him, that you saved him? When angels are so much greater and more powerful and beautiful, these beings far superior in intellect and power are servants of man. They're your servants. It's almost like how I feel when I walk a dog. I'm so much more powerful than you and smarter than you, but you're leading me around and I'm picking up your poo. Right? That's how angels must feel right? because we're so much lesser a being with them, but we are, they are our servants, and the Bible even says you'll judge angels one day. Right? Humanity matters. Number four, they serve God's people in their struggle to serve Jesus. You have, you have a friend, and his, their number is without ends. And their job is to help you grow in your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. 
They are called ministering spirits sent to minister to all those who will inherit salvation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Though we can't see or communicate with them because they're spiritual beings, they are present in service to us in ways that we can't even see. You're not alone. Isn't that good news? You're not alone. There's a war going on, and it's hard, but you're not alone. You see, not only is God with you, which, was, which is what should matter the most, but he has sent his really strong friends to help us, to serve us. We're not alone. It's not ultimately the angels that are protecting us that should give us peace, but God himself is interested in being with us and ministering to us. And finally, you know, this, this should matter. The reason why this matters is that the story of the angelic world points to the importance of the story of salvation for mankind. God created two families. Both were to be on God's side, humans and angels. We were both never intended to rebel against God, but we did. One was higher than the other in order. Both fell. The higher order had closer access to God's presence, greater responsibilities. The angels, they fell. They're doomed. While the elect angels are sealed and destined for God's presence, humanity should look to the angelic drama in awe of the fact that God has decided to save us. He didn't do that with the fallen angels. He's decided to save you. So the very fact that we, we get a window into this angelic drama of God's elect angels and God's fallen ones should point us to the reality that our greatest need is to be united to God through Christ. You see, friends, it is one of the privileges of humanity. God sent his son Christ, a man, to die for his sins. And it's why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving you through those who preached the good news to you Things that the angels long to look. You see, because in their drama, salvation was not provided, but in the human drama, it was. God saving them. Wonderful. So let me close, and I'll say a few more things, and then we'll pray. These two families, angel and human, separate from sin, eventually, when Christ returns, are drawn back together Oh, friends, God is glorious. Human history matters. You matter. And don't, don't you forget that we're served, if you are in Christ, we're served by angelic hosts that walk by us daily with our God. We have a great salvation, don't we? Let's pray.